We at the Cape York Partnership acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional lands of First Nations people, and we pay our respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. We should keep our country... Uh, well, let's say the Indigenous box has been ticked and we've solved the problem. That we cannot give Indigenous and, uh, Australians up without giving them much of our ideas. To actually recognise you know what? It's time to listen. Welcome to Time to Listen a podcast that gives a space and a platform to First Nations voices. You are with your host, Isaac McCarthy, and joining me on the podcast today is Prue Briggs, who is the Head of Policy at the Cape York Institute for Policy and Leadership, also known as CYI. Prue has worked in the public policy space for over 15 years and is currently overseeing multiple policy initiatives and reform ideas which have the potential to permanently transform the socioeconomic well-being of Indigenous communities for the better. Notably, those in Cape York, which CYI has consulted with for nearly two decades. Prue and I discuss this process of consultation, as well as how the general operations of a think tank such as CYI work to influence and inform government at all levels. Prue then gives us an overview of CYI's policy agenda for 2021, which includes a national jobs guarantee and the First Nations voice to Parliament. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And now we bring you Prue Briggs. Hi, Prue. Thanks Hi. very much for, for joining me in this echoey podcasting room. <laughs> Thank you for having me. What we're going to do today is uh, get Prue to give us a little bit of an intro- uh, introduction to herself uh, and her, a background of her position at the Cape York Institute. So, Prue, whenever you're ready, fire away. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Prue. So who is Prue? Prue Briggs is my name and I'm the head of policy at Cape York Institute. As a child, I was always the kid that asked why. And I think that the position that I've landed in now at the age of 37 uh, suits my disposition just fine because at Cape York Institute, we are constantly asking why. Why are things the way they are? Why is youth incarceration amongst Indigenous youth Um, double the national average? Why haven't we closed the gap in the past 10 years? Why um, do the issues in Indigenous affairs seem to be getting worse from time to time? So Prue Briggs is a person that asked the question why um, and has a deeply held passion for reform in the Indigenous space. So it sounds very much in the act of asking why you're almost as a uh, yourself and uh, as CYI you're putting a challenge forward you're almost uh, challenging the status quo would is that a is that another another way of saying and literally what you just said then absolutely we we are challenging the status quo uh, we have a history of doing it since 2005 it doesn't always make us friends um, when you challenge the status quo you of course take on many years of Um, vested interest and previously sort of believed truths that may not be true. And it's really our job at Cape York Institute 
to take a very hard look at the systems that are governing Indigenous affairs and try to understand if they are leading us in the right direction. It's a very difficult thing to do um, because when you start to realise that some of the things you've been told don't hold true, um, it is like an awakening and then we need to build support around that amongst the political parties and from the public and it's, uh, it, it can be a difficult journey. Yes, yeah, certainly. And uh, when one starts to work in uh, an organisation concerned with Indigenous affairs, you very quickly learn uh, that it is a slow-moving issue because there is a lot to understand. There is a lot to reconcile between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. But I just wonder, Prue, is, is it also a bit of a slow-moving issue because people haven't challenged the status quo enough quite enough in the past and uh, this is something that CYI may be looking to change. Absolutely. I will say that um, the people that have most challenged the status quo over the years have been the elders uh, that we get our spirit and instruction from on Cape York. If you go back over uh, the oral histories of Cape York from the time of colonialisation, you very clearly can hear the voice of elders challenging the decisions of government, informing those in power um, that this will lead to an outcome that is not good for their people. Um, And that has, those voices were heard, um, were not heard, sorry, on so many occasions, but are or provide the, the inspiration for the work we do day to day. So, We have our instructions at Cape York Institute and they're from the people of Cape York and we're very clear about that. Uh, One of the biggest challenges is how we create the space for government to listen to those voices amongst a population that has very little political power and close to zero financial power. The issue of financial power is something that we're definitely going to explore on future podcast episodes, not just with the Cape York Institute, but um, many other entities under the Cape York Partnership uh, umbrella. And it's actually probably a good time to acknowledge that Cape York Institute falls under the Cape York Partnership umbrella. It's very much uh, tied uh, into its values um, and shared values with the other entities as well. So look, I, I don't know about everyone else, but I know definitely for myself, I don't have a lot of idea about how a a think tank or a policy institute such as the Cape York Institute interacts with government and other stakeholders in order to keep them informed, uh, challenge their positions and offer up policy recommendations. Uh, Would you mind giving us a bit of an insight as to how that relationship works, uh, perhaps some of the uh, the challenges but also the opportunities that that are present in that relationship as well? Absolutely, happy to. So a think tank um, is often credited with conceiving of ideas and designing new systems and policies that um, allow government uh, to come up with solutions on particular issues. Uh, Cape York Institute is one of those think tanks, um, but it's different to many think tanks in that We work very closely with Indigenous people on the ground. Uh, We work with some of uh, the most amazing people in the country, most amazingly resilient people in the country, and we get our instructions and the source of our ideas from them. So they're not ideas um, 
plucked from the heavens or plucked from a theoretical framework. They're ideas um, that are drawn from the intent of the people on Cape York. And by that I mean for over, I'll give you an example about employment, for over 50 years now the Indigenous elders at various summits and gatherings have been saying employment, we need jobs, we don't need welfare, we need employment. Now that's the voice of intent that Cape York Institute then takes and transforms into policy options for government to consider. We're very well connected into Cape York partnerships which run many different uh, entities on the ground so we have good connections um, to all the communities on Cape York and so we always hear from them what's top of mind for people on the ground which informs our work of course and then we gather evidence and research from around the world from some of the best writers, philosophers, political thinkers, economists uh, and we we find those people and we talk to them and we try to bring their insight and experience um, to bear on the problems faced by people on the ground and then play that back to the communities um, and see if they will like us to push a particular policy position with the government. So a, I guess a, a typical day in the life of Cape York Institute could land you from talking to people in any one of our communities or in Cairns through to talking to some of the, the best academics and, and leading strategists in the world about particular issues and then packaging that up in a way that government can understand it and can act on it um, and that we can influence on it. Am I correct when I, when I say that the Palmer platform, for example, that has just been launched in Cape York recently, is that a, an example of uh, one of these uh, initiatives birthed out of uh, Cape York Institute through work that has been done on the ground in consultation with communities? Absolutely. Palmer platform is, is essentially it's, a, it's an app. Uh, and through which people can start to take control of their lives through this app and it gives them uh, access to various products, one being locked accounts, locked, locked bank accounts. And the concept of a locked bank account was um, raised by a problem that people on the ground had identified over 25 years ago with welfare payments coming into the community that those that wanted to be responsible with their money had nowhere to bank it. A lot of people didn't have bank accounts. A lot of people then had cash that they felt obligated to share with the people in their family. And because they were sharing, uh, they couldn't necessarily um, start to save and put that money away for important things like educated, education and home ownership. So 25 years ago, they said, we need to find a solution to this. For the last 10 years, we've had uh, student education trusts on Cape York, which allow parents and grandparents and family members to put money away for students for their education. There's a million dollars now in those accounts throughout Cape York. And the next iteration of that is Palmer Platform, which is an app which provides people with lots of different um, bank accounts to which they can put money towards assets. And over time, they'll grow their wealth because of that. So that's a great example, yes. So, Prue, I think uh, from here, I'd really like to hear about the policy focus uh, for Cape York Institute for 2021. Uh, if we could discuss some key uh, key points of focus uh, that the Institute has. Uh, so, did you want to uh, 
uh, do a bit of a machine gun round of, uh, of uh, different points and then we'll explore them a little bit in depth. Sure, sure. The, one of our biggest focus this year is moving the Cape York to a position of full employment, which means getting everybody on Cape York a job through a job guarantee. We're also working on empowering people on the ground through helping with the design of the voice um, and getting that constitutionally enshrined. We are working on what I what I believe is the first ever Indigenous-led co-design process for child safety called Every Child Safe. We are, um, of course, assisting with getting the funding renewed for the Family Responsibilities Commission, and we're working on designing a model for Year 13, which is essentially a year, an extra year of school, where our students get. Um, get to work and get to grow their skills uh, before they go out into the real world. Brilliant. Well, let's uh, let's hit the most topical one first. A lot of people would have seen in the media of late, and that's being the voice to parliament. Um, and, it, and we should note that it is a proposed voice to parliament, not a voice to government. So let's start there. What's the difference between these two and why is it really important that we think of this as it ought to be thought about as a voice to parliament? Voice to Parliament is a critical piece in the the jigsaw puzzle if we're talking about closing the gap. The reason why the Voice to Parliament is so important is it is a mechanism to balance the power out between the government, those that have political power, and those that have financial power or business, business interests, and the more marginalised Indigenous communities that have close to zero power. The way the voice would give Indigenous people power is by ensuring that they were able to provide advice on policies and laws that affected them most. They uh, will be able to provide that advice at a local and regional level and also at a national level. But our strong sense of... Um, of the lay of the land in Indigenous affairs is unless you provide a way for Indigenous voices to be heard and considered in everything that government does, you will not solve the problem of Indigenous disadvantage. On Cape York, we have over, well, well, over through the regional organisations over 30 years of experience of seeing the voices of Indigenous people being ignored or misrepresented by those that have political power and we can see the results. The results are very poor. And so the voice is about empowering those on the ground to have a seat at the table with government to influence those that make decisions And without a rebalancing of the power between government and Indigenous people, we're of the strong view that you won't get lasting change. And Prue, would you be happy to speak or talk us through the two options for the voice that have been put forward? So the the group of people that are responsible for the options that are you know circulating in the public today is actually fifty two Indigenous leaders that sit on the co design group. So that's a great question, and thank you for it. So it is the co design group of Indigenous leaders that are asking for Australians' opinions on the two different models. The it. 
it's very interesting because there's many questions in a discussion paper that still need to be finalized about the design of the voice. Um, and you'll see that when you go and look at it, there's, you know, we could do A or we could do B. And they ask that multiple times because they want the Australian public and particularly Indigenous Australians to help design the voice with them. Um, the the overall, I mean, the differences between the two models, there are many and you really need to go and read about them. Um, but, but one of the most important things I will say is that we get the model right for local and regional voices. And the reason I put emphasis on local and regional voices being heard is that there's been a lot of discussion about the national voice and the national voice is necessary, but it provides advice at a very high level removed from those on the ground. But that national voice must be connected to the local and regional voices so the voices of people in disadvantaged communities can be heard all the way up to our state representatives in Cam um, in Brisbane and then on to national representatives in Canberra. So I do encourage people to, uh, to, to read the paper and particularly look at how we can strengthen the regional and local voices so people on the ground are finally heard. So Prue, uh, would you be able to actually run us through how CYI is being involved in, in this process? CYI has uh, had long involvement with The Voice and I can actually remember... I remember the time 13 years ago where I previously worked in Cape York where the original idea for some form of substantial constitutional recognition came from Cape York and was put to John Howard in 2007 before the federal election and he committed to doing it and then Kevin Rudd committed to doing it and we had bipartisan support from that moment on. So it's important to, to remember the history um, and to credit those that were involved very early on from Cape York. Um, and remember their contribution. And now, um, now really, Cape York Institute is still involved, has been for the last 13 or 14 years. Um, Fiona Jose, our CEO, uh, is on the co-design group for the local and regional voice um, and, and is helping to design the elements of those and we, we advise her on those and so do local Indigenous communities through our Palmer Futures um, process. And Noel Pearson's on the senior advisory group that is also um, advising on the national co-design. And then Cape York Institute itself is putting together a submission as part of the public consultation process to go through all the options and provide advice which will be made public um, on how we can strengthen the design um, and, and how we can ensure, again, like I said, that the local voices are heard and that's a really exciting process to go through because we're, we're designing something that is entirely new, um, that will be very historic, um, and that will have an impact on generations to come. So it's a real privilege. Correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Prue, but it's around about mid-June that we're likely to hear something from government about this process. Is that correct? So mid-June, mid we're likely... Um, what will happen from here is public consultations will probably close in May... And then the co-design group will take into account all of the submissions and feedback that they've heard. And then towards the end of the year, they will provide a final report to government on the recommended design for the voice. And then we need to call for constitutional recognition. 
let's talk about the jobs guarantee because this is also something that is not only being spoken about here in Australia, uh, primarily through the work of Noel Pearson uh, and uh, and the perspectives that he's been able to offer on this, but it's actually being spoken about uh, around the world in hand in hand with other economic concepts uh, like universal basic income. Uh, so why uh, why do we need a jobs guarantee? And really, what is a jobs guarantee? The question we often ask at Cape York Institute is, what is the modern day boundary street? And for those of you that don't know, boundary street You'll see many boundary streets in Australian cities and those streets mark, used to mark the boundary beyond which Indigenous people couldn't walk within a city precinct. So we ask ourselves, what is the modern-day boundary street? What is holding Indigenous people back? Where can't they walk that, in, that non-Indigenous people can? And what we found is that Indigenous people, particularly those that are marginalised in remote communities can't walk in the real economy in Australia. They don't really play in the real economy in Australia. And so when we see headlines about the economy is growing by 3% this quarter, well, Indigenous people aren't a part of that economy. And when we see that house prices go up by 20% in a year, which is staggering growth, Indigenous people, a, a good amount of Indigenous people don't share in that wealth creation. And the boundary that marks um, Indigenous people's exclusion from the real economy is welfare. It's welfare dependency, and in particular it's welfare dependency where there are no jobs and there will be no jobs. So in remote communities, for many years, Indigenous people have been told the jobs will come. You've got to take responsibility and then take the job. But we know through experience in Cape York that the jobs and the choice of job to match capability has not come for the last 20 years and is likely not to come in the future because of complex land tenure arrangements. And we need to face up to that fact and say if the jobs won't come and we want to get people off welfare, then we need to provide the jobs, not provide welfare, provide a job with superannuation and leave so people, Indigenous people, can take their place in the Australian economy. And we propose that the best way to do that is a job guarantee for all disadvantaged people in Australia. So those on welfare that are able to work, they get a job. The job is meaningful, it has an articulation pathway into the private economy and the wages are provided by government. Because we have been working very closely with Professor Bill Mitchell at the University of Newcastle and people might have varying views on Professor Mitchell and his views about modern monetary theory. That's a separate discussion. But something that Professor Mitchell has been able to argue very well is that if you move an economy towards full employment, you will not necessarily get inflation, particularly if you have a job guarantee that anchors a wage at a certain price. Now, this is all blah, blah, blah economics to people, but it was this insight that opened up the way for us to say, actually, we've heard this inflation argument before. 
And it's no longer an impediment to moving Australia to a full employment environment. And we're convinced that unless we get jobs for our 1,400 people on Cape York, you will not close the gap. If the government commits to jobs for our 1,400 people on Cape York, the gap will be closed in the next five years. Let's talk about Every Child Safe. So this is an Indigenous-led initiative, the first of its kind, uh, particularly concerning the safety and well-being of children exclusive to the Cape? Uh, Not just exclusive to Cape York, but also West Cairns. Yeah, it's a very important piece of work. It was started eight months ago after Indigenous leaders from communities in Arakoon and West Cairns and Naparanam approached us very concerned that a lot of the recommendations from previous government inquiries into the safety of children uh, weren't being implemented effectively by the government and their want to take control of the situation and to provide a better future for their children. Uh, It was a call that was born out of love for the children that led us to kick off a policy process and that's where we partner with communities. We bring our policy expertise to the table and they bring the intent to want to change. And we are now about to enter a co-design process with three Indigenous communities, Naparina, Maracoon and West Cairns, um, which will take 24 months. It'll take time to design a community-centred approach to child protection, not a government-centric approach, a community-centred approach that is based on our belief in empowering parents to change the life of their children. So we see parents as the agents of change, supported by the village and a set of social norms that uphold the right of the child. This is the theory of change and this is what those communities want to work on and we are dedicating funding to making it happen. Uh, We are working with experts from all around the world from different fields ranging from criminology uh, to youth sexual violence um, to psychology to economics to social policy, bringing them to our expert panel which has been convened to bring that expertise to communities and for communities to match that with their own local knowledge and expertise. And I think we're going to get some some tremendous recommendations for change coming from this that will be sustainable and locally led. Uh, Not wanting to speak too much for the communities because we haven't heard their voice through the co-design process yet. But from previous discussions with communities and previous summits held throughout Cape York, some themes... uh, Um, are continually brought up. One theme is about employment and we do believe that if you're going to empower parents to take charge of their life, one of the best things that you can do for them is give them a job and some will require support in that job and that should be provided. But a job and employment is actually, so economics here is key to turning the social situation around. The other thing that comes up very often um, and is difficult to grapple with but can be managed if we have the will is trauma. So dealing with intergenerational trauma, um, there's been a a ridiculous amount of change um, in Indigenous communities over the past 200 years and change is a euphemism um, and, and they have survived but what they carry with them, a lot of them, is trauma. And the children carry the trauma as well. 
and we need to provide um, a space for young people um, and for, for adults to heal. And so you need to combine solutions from the left, which is usually social policy, with solutions from the right, which is economic policy, uh, to find that radical centre um, of reform that we often talk about in Cape York. Yeah, you're definitely speaking my language now, combining the best ideas from the left and the right to, to find a solution. It's almost as if uh, both sides of the aisle have some great ideas and uh, if only they work together, you know, who knows? Exactly. Uh, who knows what you're going to come up with? Finally, we have the Year 13 initiative. Now, I understand uh, at the moment it's uh, very much in its inception, uh, So, but perhaps you can talk uh, to us about uh, what, what the Year 13 um, initiative involves. One of the best opportunities we have been a, a think tank that's attached to Cape York Partnerships, which actually uh, runs two incredible schools, Jarrigan College and Girls Academy, is that, I mean, for policy practitioners, this is gold. We have access to a school, two schools, uh, where we can learn and test some of our ideas, particularly those relating to young people. Year 13 is a concept of... Um, providing an opportunity for those that come straight out of school to move straight into a job, straight into supported housing that encourages them to live independently but doesn't just throw them into the the real world straight away um, and provides them with ongoing mentoring support for a year. So then when they shift to year 14, they are on a strong foundation and then they can move straight into a full-time job and they have that place in the real economy that we know is so important. So we're designing essentially a year after school for Cape York students because what we don't want to happen is Cape York students um, leave in school, have the world at their feet, and then for whatever reason, um, some of which are beyond their control, they go back to community and they end up on welfare. And as you know, we think that that is uh, a path to dysfunction. And what we want them to do is understand that straight out of school, they have the capability and they have the skills to move into full-time employment. And we are going to design a product that will allow them to do that in a year after school. Awesome. We have so much to explore throughout this year. Uh, the wheels are certainly in motion uh, with, with Cape York Institute. Hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more of you, speaking to you regularly uh, and uh, keeping track of, of how all this is going. Prue, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been great. Thank you for taking the time to listen. To keep up to date with future episodes, subscribe through your preferred podcast app and follow the Cape York Partnership on Facebook. Next week, I am speaking with Audrey DeMarle, General Manager of Cape Operations at the Cape York Partnership. Audrey oversees the operations of the Opportunity Hubs, which exist to provide financial empowerment to Cape York communities. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cape York Partnership and the Cape York Institute for Policy and Leadership.